are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 14. I'm your host, Steve Angel, and both myself and Nick just spent the last few days flinging arrows and chatting with some of you at the Compton's Traditional Bow Hunters Rendezvous in Berrien Springs, Michigan. We even got to meet Mr. James Orr and the one and only Bob the Bowhunter Borland from over on the TradQuest podcast, and we had some good conversations with those guys. And we even managed to sit down and record a few future episodes with some pretty special people while we were there. Uh, but you're going to have to wait just a week or two to hear more about those. This week, we're back with Mr. Jay St. Charles, and we're going to spend a little time learning more about how Jay became the master boyer that he is. And... As I've come to expect from Jay, you can expect some pretty fantastic nuggets of some great archery history mixed in here and there as well. It's a packed episode, so let's get to it. How's it going, Jay? How you been? Going good. Going good. Great to be here. Uh, we've got our uh, we've got our, a little decent spell of weather that's had me outside working, so I've been liking you've that. Been, you've and, been making uh, sawdust, hadn't you? Making sawdust outdoors, you awesome. bet. Awesome, awesome. Well, we uh, we we're glad to have you back. Uh, I know when we we spoke the last time, we we spent uh, a lot of time talking about uh, your 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 background and and growing up. And and Nick uh, Nick really wanted to to get you back on to to talk about building bows, um, which is something I know you're you're very fond of. Yeah, very much so. <clears throat> And, uh, yeah, I, I, I build quite a few bows every year and, and I've built quite a number of different styles, uh, from self bows to laminated bows and, and some experimental things as well. So, um, but yeah, what, what got me going really in making bows was, um, uh, this resurgence of traditional archery, uh, that happened uh, as I think we, uh, when the compound bow became fully established in the mid '70s. By that time, the, there was a, a backlash uh, immediately, almost, among bow hunters and archers that that uh, kind of remembered the older, simpler way of shooting and and, uh, and and wanted to trot right back into it again. And most of them. Uh, of those fellows had been recurve shooters uh, before they, a lot of them played with a compound bow and, and, and they were looking for something fresh. And, uh, the fresh thing was a longbow. Hardly any of these fellows had ever shot longbows. Longbows were, were not part of the fabric of, of things in the, in the fifties and sixties, uh, only on a very limited scale. And, uh, and my, of course my father had been making bows, back in the 30s and 40s and we had some of his old bows around and and uh but well well before you get before you get too far ahead of me let's let's let me pause you there a little bit and and let's let's talk about that a little bit first so i know i know your father glenn was a boyer and and i know that he's he's well known for the thunderbird but uh let's go back and start there tell us you know tell us a little bit about what you recall about your dad's years as a boyer and, and kind of lead into how you were introduced into uh, bow making. Well, he, he got started for his first bow making experiences were, were in the Boy Scouts and uh, they were living in West Seattle. Uh, 
sort of a western suburb of, of Seattle. And uh, so he he and he was active in the Scouts, and they they made bows and did a lot of things. But he he got really into that archery part of that, and uh, and that's where he bumped into a fellow named Corderier, who was also working with Scouts in bow making, and uh, and so he. He took an immediate interest in in crafting his own bows, and uh, this would have been a, a around uh, oh the early '30s, uh, mid '30s, and uh, and he he by the time that you got into the late '30s, he was making bows, and and we had already kind of committed himself committed himself to the idea of maybe making something of a living or part of his living in, in archery. And uh, so by the late 30s, he was making bows and, and selling some of those bows. And, and, of course, there were a lot of bow making going on. Uh, a good many of the archers back then made their own tackle, uh, including their own bows. And they tended to help each other out. There was uh, the, the one of the centers of things in Seattle was Corderier's Basement. And a lot of bows, a lot of arrows, a lot of tackle got made down there by a lot of different people. And uh, so that, and following that, he he and some other fellows opened up a shop uh, on Airport Way toward Boeing Field and, uh, and made some tackle there. My, my dad had been always been working with Uwood, and... Uh, but there was a lot of experimenting with, with backings. And uh, one of the backings that was available in Seattle was whale baleen, you know, with uh, access to the docks and whatnot in the, in the, the harbor area. And uh, whale baleen came from uh, uh, baleen whales, blue whales, uh, uh, humpbacks, right whales. They're the type. And what they do with this, what baleen is, it's actually kind of a... a a horny, hairy substance that's in their mouths, and they use that to strain plankton and krell, uh, tiny, tiny sea creatures uh, that exist in huge amounts down south, down toward the South Pole. And uh, part of the these whales migrate, and they, they, uh, and I, I've been down there and seen some of these fields of krell and plankton where. It almost makes the, the, the water almost looks, uh, oh, like cream of wheat cereal. <laughs> the, the, the wildlife is so thick down there. Uh, there's so much food in the water that um, they can, that's where they, that's where you they go. You have to wonder that. who came up with the idea to try that for bow backing. That... Well, it, it was, it, it was, uh, at one time, it, the, the main product for that were, were women's corsets. Uh, the spring and, and women's corsets and then corsets got out of style and and for a while there there was no market for it and it would it would sit in warehouses in Seattle there was a lot of it sitting around nobody doing anything with it and my dad was able to uh, secure some and it it was like a natural it was like horn like a, a lot of the Asiatic bows used horn backing right. and horn bellies mm-hmm. and uh and so here's another form of horn. And uh, so he made quite a few baleen bows. That was kind of his trademark. He, 
he had a decal with a whale on it. And whaling was still going on. Uh, there was a lot of this material around, and uh, it was kind of like a natural fiberglass. So is it is it in strands, Jay? I mean, how does that work? Is it put on? Is it put in? Is it like long sheets of it, or long? Yeah, how does that work? If you look at a piece of baleen, there's a, there's a hairy part of it that's on the edge, and then it 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 transitions into what looks like horn material, and it's that. Uh, a piece of baleen that that he was working with might be 15 feet long. Oh wow! And, uh, yeah, <laughs> big long piece, and it might be uh, three eighths of an inch thick, might be half inch thick at the at its thickest, and uh, so you might have an area that's maybe uh, eight ten inches wide, and maybe maybe eight ten feet long. That, that actually could produce bow backing. So you can get quite a bit yeah. out of one, one chunk of natural baleen. And, uh, and you, it could be split or it could be sanded to thinner, uh, thinner dimensions. And usually a, a, a average bow backing might be an eighth of an inch thick, maybe three sixteenths thick. And it was placed on a bow just like uh, you'd put rawhide or, or, uh, or any number of things. And I've seen I, I, I've used. seen several of, yeah. of Core's, uh, the bows that Core built. I know you you still own a few of those. And if I remember correctly, those were those were backed with linen, right? They were U-bows, but they were backed with linen, right? Well, it, there was some linen backing going on, but he primarily backed with rawhide. Yeah, but it was, it, it doesn't look like the rawhide we're used to looking at. He was using something that was marketed as uh, uh Unborn calfskin, if you can believe that. It's, it's almost translucent. Drum, almost translucent. It almost disappears. You have to really look closely to see that there's backing there. And uh, But that was enough of a backing, that, that really thin rawhide, to uh, to make the bow more durable, but, but to do so without robbing any performance from it, per se. Uh, a thick piece of rawhide really doesn't add to the performance of a bow. Uh, it simply makes the bow more impervious to to, to dents and knocks, and, and it and it also uh, makes the back of the bow tougher from a from a breaking standpoint. But you could actually put anything on the back of a bow. People used to uh, back bows with paper. Uh, just the fact that there's a layer of glue with something on top of it is significant from a backing standpoint. But what was different about the baleen is you could actually uh, you could preload that backing with the preloading the bending of the bow, and you could actually enhance the performance of a bow with a piece of baleen, and and you can also enhance the performance with with sinew as opposed to right. To, now uh, I have heard that rawhide. Yeah, yeah. And so it acts kind of like a uh, a sheet of sinew instead of putting it on in in uh, you know in strands or. Uh, you simply glue that baleen on. And I've made a I've yeah, made a few yeah. uh, board bows and actually back those with just go to Walmart and buy you know cheap fabric, <laughs> camouflage fabric, and it uh, it works great it, just it all, with um, yeah it does wood glue <laughs> it does yeah 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 I pretty much I've done that too and I've used I've used silk shirts um, I did actually one of the things I've done before is I used um, automotive fiberglass strands and put it oh. on and put it on just like sinew. Um, and that worked really well, but I'm, I'm really trying, I, I had no idea that you could, 
well, for one, I didn't know that baleen was used for corsets and used for, I didn't know you could back a bow with it. In fact, I, um, I, I'm having a hard time. I, I'm struggling trying to try to imagine what that would like. Do you have these, do you have any of these old bows that your dad did laying around that has the baleen? Oh, I do. I do. I have, yeah, I have, I have some of the old baleen. I have the bows. It's, they're very attractive. They're pretty bows. It's kind of a, it, it comes out kind of like a translucent, uh, gray blue color. Uh, when it's when it's shined up, kind of some of it has a bit of a greenish tint to it, but very very unique looking, very singular. It doesn't look like anything else. You look at a baleen bow, you know what you're looking at. And uh, now these days there's some there's some major restrictions. Oh, I'm on, sure. <laughs> uh, any com- any commercial use with the, with the Marine Mammals Act and all that. Uh, so a, a person has to be. Uh, a Native American has has certain rights to being able to work with baleen, but without that caveat, uh, uh, there's you know it's not something that he these days a person couldn't use baleen as a backing and then commercially market those bows without some uh, intervention of uh, Native American that would be that would be working you know in concert with sure. that. And uh, I have a friend. Uh, the uh, Fred Severe lives in Seattle. He's a native artist. Uh, his, his native name is Tukaluk, and uh, and he makes U-bows. And his uh, he has lots of family members up in Point Barrow, and he'll go up north up there and and bring back baleen, uh, all all manner of things, and he makes baleen bows, and 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 marks them with his with his maker's name. And uh, so they do exist. And if somebody wanted a baleen bow, he'd be the guy to go to because he, he's making them today. There, so, so what kind of, sorry, no, go Steve, ahead, so, so, so what kind of bows was your dad making with the baleen? Exactly they, what I was re- getting ready to ask. Were they, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, he made, yeah, uh, he made long bows, certainly just straight ended bows, but the, uh, the fashion, the fashionable bow at that time was a was the static recurve, uh, much like the uh, oh the early bare fiberglass bows that had the static recurves, just that L shaped hook. You you basically turned the the end of the bow into about a four inch long lever mm-hmm. uh, or shorter, and uh, and that lever would would in, give an enhanced bending of the of the body of the limb, and 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 in store energy a little bit uh, in, in a little bit more aggressive form than just a longbow would. And so he, he made a lot of static-tipped uh, uh, recurve bows using the baleen. And, and the baleen helped out. He, he used the baleen as not only a backing but a facing. He'd have it on both sides of the limb, uh, much like a modern fiberglass bow. But he'd use the backing or the, the baleen to do that. So, and, I, uh, and he made a lot of takedown bows. Uh, the uh, often uh, you can get a, a, a better matched wooden bow out of two pieces of wood that grew side by side than you could out of a, a full length bow with some some wood that grew six feet apart or eight feet apart. And so, I think he wrote a book about that. Didn't yeah, he? <laughs> yeah, he, he wrote a he, matter of fact he did. He wrote a book called Billets to Bow and. Uh, 
and it gives instructions on bow making, and it, and it gives a lot of his, his early history in bow and making. I, in I there. said that because I do remember it's, reading his, there's a statement, yeah. he makes a statement in the book about that, that it's uh, two pieces from the same trees better than two that are growing, you know, side by side. Yeah. Sister billets, right. they're called. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's a lot of, there's a lot more straight, clear you would that's maybe 40 inches long than there is uh, 80 inches long. <laughs> so it opened up the, the ability to use these shorter pieces of wood. And, and since they were going to splice them anyway uh, to make a, a longer stave, might as well make it a takedown and use the takedown apparatus as, sure. as the splice. And uh, so Durier uh, made a lot of takedown bows. He... Uh, and my dad had noticed that that was probably half of the bows that Durier made that I've seen were takedown bows. And he made his own sleeves. Durier did. His were sliding sleeve sort of apparatus. They had um, they were made out of aircraft steel that were formed into sort of a D uh, shape that would fit the back of the bow and the and the belly of the bow around the handle area, you know. And uh, so he and he made them in various sizes. He made some. Uh, Oh, beautiful takedown sleeves. So, Durier was kind of an archery renaissance man <laughs> at the time. He made arrow shafts. You know, he had a dowling machine. He made broadheads. He made, he made, uh, you know, he processed raw materials. Uh, he, he had the most extensive, probably the most extensive shop in Seattle. There were some other people making bows commercially too, besides him and the. And this is all in the. 20s and 30s this is before my dad got in well and i've seen i've seen that one bow um uh i always forget the, oh lion Lionheart is the name of that bow where he where he actually it was a uh, i think it was a static tip bow where he spliced the actual limb tips uh and what was it your dad said he was just showing off or something but that is a beautiful yeah bow. he just he did it just a just a straight wood on wood uh, splice right. using uh, casein glue. That was the best glue he had. It's, it's their, that's what they were gluing airplanes together with in World War One. It was kind of a melt glue, and uh, but he was a master at using that. And if you if you yeah, looked at the yeah. limb tip on that bow, the way it's built, you would you would really scratch your head and wonder how it how it worked. But obviously, it did. The bow's what seventy years old or more. Yeah, and it was old? a 65 pound bow. Yeah, it was it was built. Uh, probably no later than 1940, and uh, but it survived uh, and had a career, and and still in one piece. So, uh, so it, it, it's a rawhide back. So, how did we get from there, Jay, to fiberglass and the Thunderbird? Well, the following following World War Two, in uh, World War Two, took a lot of people. Uh, it was uh, a major event for everyone, but the, those archers, that the older archers that were still in the country, uh, continued their sport and uh, and continued to have events. You know, you had to have just like a lot of things were going on in the country. Major League Baseball was still going on. It was important to the country to have some recreation and. Uh, uh, so archery was something that could be done w- without a lot of travel and whatnot. I know Durier had an order for 60 bows for the Navy <laughs> and arrows to fit them. And it, they needed it in like six weeks or something like that. 
And uh, so he got a few friends together, and they they made the order. You know that so that was going on during the war. But uh, after the war, we had some materials that didn't exist prior. Uh, and fiberglass was one of those materials. And Boeing Aircraft Company uh, was using fiberglass in the interior of airplanes as a, as bulkhead material. And when the war stopped, there was a lot of surplus around. And uh, and just like the baleen that was down in the docks, there was um, there were warehouses full of uh, fiberglass of different thicknesses and different styles and whatnot. And uh, one of one the the material was used for bulkheads was kind of a uh, it was a woven material. It looks a lot like the fabric, except it had it was pressed and heated into a sheet that might be uh, oh sixteenth of an inch thick, but it was you know it was like a sheet of uh, a sheet of plastic, but but fiberglass, and uh, that was an early material that he used. I have I have uh, a fiberglass back bow of my dad's. It's marked nineteen forty five. So wow, sometime late nineteen forty five, he he had some fiberglass and and he backed this uh, static tipped U bow with it and. Uh, so, so was he the first, Jay? No, he wasn't the first, because this was also going on down in California. They, had air, they were building aircraft down there, but it, it, it centered around the areas where aircraft was being built. And uh, uh, Floyd Eccleston down in California was, was experimenting with fiberglass. He's one notable that was doing that. Mm, and other okay. people were as well. And not, no, well, not Floyd Eccleston. Not not Floyd Eccleston. He's a he's the broadhead guy. <laughs> it's another gentleman, and I and I got him mixed up. Sorry about That's that. Okay. Sorry, Floyd. <laughs> and uh, but there were other there were other folks doing this, and yeah. But he he had ready access, and 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 he'd already had a bow shop. You know, he had a shop where he's making bows, and uh, so and that things rapidly uh, fiberglass wise things rapidly advanced. Uh, as soon as they saw the potential for this backing material, uh, it wasn't long before there was purpose-built backing material of the same character and better character. Uh, and uh, so by the by the time we 1951-52, uh, Bear was using this material on their static tip bows, and, uh, and and we were selling Bear bows at Northwest Archery Company, our local, you know, our, our family run store and uh, so uh, this all gave my dad the thought of of, uh, the, of perhaps having a factory like bears what, what would that be like to have uh, like a bear archery factory out west and uh, making his own bows with that so that's where the Thunderbird came from and, and uh, uh, a, a whole lot of the archers that were around Northwest Archery Company and around Seattle area, uh, Boeing was actually the major employer uh, in in the Seattle area uh, it, by the end of the World War II. Uh, now it's many other things. <laughs> now we have Microsoft and Amazon and all these other guys. But now that was it. Boeing was about it. In fact, uh, fortunes rose and fell uh, with the uh, fortunes of Boeing. And uh, uh, when we had traffic jams, it was it was Boeing traffic that was doing the traffic jamming. And uh, 
So it was it was a real big deal. And almost everybody at one point worked for Boeing. My mom worked for Boeing. Uh, I worked for Boeing. Uh, a ton of our customers and a lot of the archers were also doing that. So Jay, how how did he how did he uh, how did the the Thunderbird come about? Well, he he had been experimenting with with different recurves and uh, you know, known about recurves and things. And he the the concept of a uh, a working recurve was not a brand new idea. There were people that were trying to build working recurve bows using natural materials uh, you know, back into the 30s and 40s and, and whatnot. But they were somewhat fragile, and uh, it needed you needed a unidirectional backing tough backing material that would that would actually hold up under the stresses of, of, of having a fully articulated working limb and and so fiberglass and that particular design kind of all happened at the same time and he he uh, so that's what he really wanted to make he wanted to make something innovative and and no one had really uh, there, there's very limited amount of work with working full working recurves at the time uh, uh, Bear was still building static tips, and uh, so to have something different, he thought that would be the different thing. We'd make a working recurve, and you know, with the potential of having a little more performance out of the bow and uh, a little different drawing characteristic. You know, where the where the whole limb's bending, you've got a a little softer uh, feel toward the end of the draw and all that. And so he just started drawing some lines and. Uh, he he told me at one time they had an old clawfoot bathtub in the shop, and that shop that bathtub was full of rejects, uh, prototypes that just didn't cut the mustard. And uh, so the bow went through the Thunderbird went before it was the Thunderbird. It went through a lot of different in, incarnations, and uh, and and finally he had something that that he liked, and uh, and it seemed to work really well, and and. Uh, and he, and he made that particular Thunderbird in, in two lengths. He, he, I, I've got the original forms that I have here were actually uh, pretty elaborate sand castings. And uh, my, my thought was and I, uh, that, that they probably came out of the Boeing model shop. <laughs> Some pattern makers made these things. And, you know, to, to these particular specs, but they're... The, 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 the original aluminum forms didn't come out of our shop. I know that because we had no way to make such a thing as that, you know. And uh, so, the, but these original forms made a lot of bows. So they, they made uh, they made a 66-inch. And I, by they, I mean my dad and, the, and these fellows that would, they, they made 350 bows in a year and a half, which is an awful lot of bows for one man to build. So he had some guys coming in and part-time working. Uh, wow. making them as well. Yeah. So, so, um, so Jay was the. Uh, that's a lot of production. So, was the was the dual shelf? I mean, was that done so that you wouldn't have to make righties and lefties and put more bows out faster, or what was the reason for that? Well, it'd be uh, before that, most bows were not really cut to center or even close to center. I mean, it, it, back in the in the forties. Uh, a lot of bows had some kind of a shelf cut out, and but the concept of having a center shot bow wasn't really a uh, wasn't really part of the picture, and uh, so a, a lot of bows were built symmetrical, 
And uh, so in, when he started building these bows, most of the Thunderbirds were dual shelf bows. And, uh, and a lot of the bows that Bear was building were, you know, were equally ambidextrous at the time. They, nobody was cutting these bows out um, really deep. Like the, the, uh, the 54 Kodiak that, that came after the, the Thunderbird was a, was a dual shelf bow. Yeah, and not cut anywhere towards center, you know, per se. So they just haven't, the, the concept of the center shot bow just hadn't entered the scene yet in, in any big way. There were a few target archers that were that were fiddling around with, you know, working toward more, moving the air toward more center. But that was not what was out there, you know, and that's not what people were shooting. So, and uh, my dad had by that time already decided he was going to shoot left-handed instead of right-handed and 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 so it could make bows that every that he could shoot and anybody could shoot you know if you did a dual shelf on them and if they're made in the the, made narrow enough and you know if you've got the bow built strongly enough one of the features of the thunderbird is it has continuous backing it has no break in the backing it's one Mm -hmm. piece of glass which makes things stronger and uh and uh, so, if you do that, you can you can make that center line of the bow pretty narrow. And I and you, you also uh, do a, and, I, a, and I make them narrow, a little narrower now than a lot of the Thunderbirds and, were. And so you I, build those with an I beam construction in the riser too, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of the initial Thunderbirds, almost all of the Thunderbirds were uh, were single pieces of wood. And then he built some that had multiple laminations in them, but you won't see very many that they're laminated. Thunderbird handles are kind of rare, and uh, so they hadn't really thought of needing to, to do an I-beam, and uh, some of the later ones have more of an I-beam sort of arrangement. Well, and, and, I, uh, and when I saw you at Compton last year, Jay, and met you for the first time in person, um, you had, you know, a few, um, in fact, I think you pretty much sold them all, didn't you, at the show, but you had a few Thunderbirds there. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, I was shocked when I picked them up. To, to to it almost felt like I had like a katana sword in my hand. Like they like they are so sleek and thin in the riser, and it it, it was really really aerodynamic feeling in my hand. And um, I had never ever had a, a recurve like that. Like I, I mean, I'm a longbow guy through and through, but. When I first picked it up, I was like, "Wow, this is actually a recurve that I would that I would shoot. Like this is this doesn't feel at all like a, and it and it doesn't feel like a um like some of the other designs of um the fifty styles recurves either. It, it's got a whole different thing going on, um and it, it's really interesting. And if and if uh, to our listeners, if you ever get a chance to check one out, definitely definitely check it out. I don't think you'll you'll shoot another bow like it. That's a recurve." Yeah, no, thank you, Nick. Yeah, yeah, that's what I what I'm trying to achieve. Is they're they're kind of a they've got some nice lines. I think they look nice, and that was that's what the original bows looked like. And uh, and they were all uh, uh, that all had that feel. And uh, as you say, and there's and there's nothing. Uh, no part of that bow that's not part of the bow. There's no extra gingerbread on it. It's just it's just all what it is, and uh, so and and so I've tried to achieve that and uh, tried to recreate what what the originals were like, and and using uh, uh, 
uh, I beefed up the riser by putting more laminations in it, and that is what's called an I-beam riser. Basically, has the the uh, the laminations are all stacked against the the pull of the bow. In other words, they're vertically stacked uh, instead of having horizontal stack. You know, have horizontal laminations. You've got it vertically, all all. Uh, 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 all, all set up to actually handle the pull of the bow, and that's the, the strongest way to build a handle. Anyway. Well, and I can I can vouch. I've got so I have I own a Thunderbird. Uh, now mine's not a dual shelf, but the riser, um, kind of like Nick was saying, it's 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 a very sleek riser on the th- the Thunderbird, and mine is uh, seventy three at twenty eight, and I've shot a ton of arrows through that bow and. You know, it, it it's definitely strong because um, I and in fact, um, Tom has shot that bow as well. I'm pretty sure, and Tom's got like a I don't know what his draw length is, but it's it's long. Um, so he's pulling it probably 30, 31 inches. Nick, do you know what Tom's draw is? I know it's longer than mine. I, I think it's thirty one inches. Yeah. So, and and yours is a sixty six inch. So it has uh, it, it it has a lot of limb. And it has a longer limb than, than a lot of modern recurves do, and uh, and it has so back at uh, even at that heavy well at that heavier draw, I'm sure there's some sensation of stacking back there at 31 inches. But but uh, in general, the 66 inch Thunderbird is very soft at the tail end, and, and uh, one in the 40 pound range, even back at 30 inches, is still putting on maybe two and a half pounds per inch. Uh, 30, 31 inches is it's kind of bottomless back there, but still performs. And uh, well, and so they are very that, smooth drawing bows. It's um, and I've told you this before. It's um, it's the only I I compare it. And Nick said it it was you know I almost felt like holding a longbow, but even drawing it, the the draw curve on that Thunderbird is is not like a typical recurve. It's it's a very smooth draw on that bow all the way back to at least 28 inches, which is what I draw. Yeah, and uh, the 63 the inches is a smooth drawing bow too, but the particularly for a guy that has a really long draw, the, the, the 66 inches is really the ticket. And I, it has, the, the, besides being longer, it also, both the two bows have different limb configurations if you hold them side by side it's a different limb on the 66 than it is on the 63 even though the the riser section is the same uh, essentially well, well don't tell tom jurgensen uh, that because tom still is in love with uh, uh valiant which if you remember is a 64 inch uh classic longbow it pulls 84 at 28 <laughs> and he shoots that bow and he's tried to take it off my hand several times but he I see but he hasn't succeeded <laughs> yeah This week on the Passing Down Traditions segment, I want to give a big shout out to Compton's Traditional Bow Hunters. Specifically, I want to talk about the youth event that is held each year at the Compton's Rendezvous in Berrien Springs, Michigan. Now, this is not your ordinary youth shoot where kids get to shoot a handful of arrows. Not at all. This is a huge youth event that takes place over the course of several hours, and there's something for kids of all ages, from the youngest of archers up to kids in their early teens. 
Now, the first year I was able to attend the event uh, in Berrien Springs, my daughter was in the upper age group. And while I didn't volunteer, I did walk along and, and kind of watch what was going on. And they got to do things like shooting at aerial targets. Uh, they learned how to follow a blood trail. It was fake blood. No people, no critters were harmed in the process. Um, but they did get to follow a fake blood trail, and they got to shoot a section of 3D targets that were set up just for them, so just for the older kids. And I do remember it came up a thunderstorm. It was pouring down rain. We had to seek shelter a couple of times, but ultimately they got it done. Um, and that age group is from 13 to roughly 16 years old. And now for the past two years, I've been one of the many volunteers um, and I've been helping with the middle age group. Now, this group of kids ranges from 6 to 12 years old. Now, these kids get to go through eight different supervised target stations with targets ranging from dollar bills to water bottles, uh, clay pigeons, CDs, and even balloons. And they get to spend roughly 10 minutes at each station before they move on to the next. All in all, the youth event plays out over roughly three hours with just this age group. And this year, it consisted of around 200 shooters. And man, let me tell you, it was a blast. And then there's even a, a Station 9 or a Stop 9 where all of the kids are given something to drink and a snack. And each participant receives a free t-shirt each year as well. Now, the kids who are under six are referred to as the Pee Wee group, um, and they get to participate as well, and they have activities that are set up that are better suited to their age, so no one is left behind. Everybody gets to participate. What a great way to get kids excited about archery, and with the older kids, they even get some useful hunting mentorship as well. The whole thing is ran like a well-oiled machine, and I am very proud to be a part of it. So my hat's off to Compton's for coordinating all of these activities and a huge thank you to the volunteers that make it all happen. In fact, I knew a great many of the volunteers for the event, as many of them are also members of the Michigan Longbow Association, which Nick and I have mentioned several times on the podcast. The MLA is the nation's largest organization dedicated to longbow shooters and longbow hunters alike. And they participate, or in many cases host, numerous youth-related events each year. This is the model for what passing down traditions is all about. So if you're not a member, consider joining Compton's Traditional Bow Hunters. And if you've never heard of the MLA, check them out as well. You won't be sorry as both of these groups are doing it right and working hard to preserve, protect, and pass on our traditions. Now let's get back to Jay St. Charles. So Jay, that 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 kind of takes us. Let's 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 kind of get into um, how, how you transitioned into, um, obviously it was probably, it wasn't anything that happened overnight, but you know, where did, where did you kind of get your start in, in, in becoming a boyer as a, as a, as a business? Well, uh, as, as we discussed when we, when the, uh, the backlash of the, from the compound bow and we were selling compound bows in the store. That's what we, that's primarily, you know, we sold more compounds than we did recurves and, uh, and longbows, although we had all those things in stock, and uh, I, since I was a small, small boy, I, I always made things. I made. I'm one of these guys that had all kinds of airplane models around his ceiling, and I made ship models, and I made lots of things. I had an uncle that was a master model maker, and uh, and, and he was also an archer, and he also worked in our archery shop. And in fact, for even for a while, we had a model section in our archery shop. We sold, you know, we sold different models, uh, uh, miniature models, you know. So I learned to work with my hands pretty early. And I started making uh, 
uh, hobby bows. Uh, as we started, I, I picked up a longbow in, in, uh, in the uh, early 70s. In fact, as soon as I got back from the service, I came back in 73 and I, I picked up a longbow. And, uh, and uh, in fact, the first thing I did was order a Super Kodiak. <laughs> when I got in the door, and it it came in, and it was a nice bow, but it wasn't the same as the Super Kodiak was before I went in. <laughs> they changed them again, <laughs> but so I I had, uh, and I always liked the Kodiak. But anyway, I started making, I started playing making wooden longbows. My dad uh, hadn't made wooden longbows in a long time, and he was very happy to see this resurgence of traditional archery come in as it was. And there also seemed an opening for wooden bows, and no one had been shooting any wooden bows at all uh, since the late 40s. I mean, as soon as fiberglass arrived in the scene, uh, people gave up those wooden bows immediately, and they just there was no no interest in them. So here, the traditional interest is coming back, and and these these new archers and, and the newly minted traditional archers they're interested in everything they want to make their own bows uh they want to mimic the bows that existed back in the 30s and 40s when when all this early archery and bow hunting history was taking place and uh so i got involved in that just as a hobby and uh i i made bows in the 70s and and uh i wasn't selling anything but i was just making them i, I think i gave most of mine away and and some of them were better than others. I, you know, what really got me off the mark, though, uh, is I started uh, I started playing around with some kids' bows, U bows made, but kid sizes, and mm-hmm. making a, a child's U bow is like making a model of a big U bow, it, except the stresses are a lot lower. You don't need as big a piece of wood. But all of the mechanics, the, the getting the limb to bend perfectly and tiller sure. and all, it's all the same. In fact, they're more difficult mm-hmm. uh, making a, a good, well-tillered 25-pound bow, I think, is more difficult than making a 50-pound bow. And ha- I've, I've heard and that have it come out. So what I've told people for years, if you want to learn to make bows, make some kids' bows, get yourself perfected on those, and then go back and make your big bow, and it'll come a lot easier. And so I did that, and... Uh, and once I once I had made a, a small number of kids' bows, I went back and cleaned up all my old projects that I that I was stymied upon, and uh, all of a sudden I could make things, and and, and they would stay in one piece, and uh, so <laughs> which, yeah, which again is a plus. It's a plus, yeah. <laughs> it, but if you're making if you're making wood bows and you're a wood bow maker, at some point you have to learn to throw things over your shoulder and not look back. You know, if you because you will break bows if you make wood bows, but don't you don't want to dwell on that part of it. See, that's what I did, Jay. I tried to make a bow for my daughter, and yeah. and I thought I'd be, you know, I made a couple board bows, and I was like, well, I can make a bow for my daughter. This will be easy, <laughs> you know. And and that's what I did. It I I I snapped it over my knee, threw it over my shoulder, and called Dave and Tracy from St. John River Bows, and never did it again. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're, but it's it's still out there waiting for you, Nick. You can you can, if what I've often thought, and I've 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 sold a lot of self bows to people, but I and wooden bows. But I think if a guy really wants to shoot a wooden bow, he really ought to make his own wooden bows because then you then you've always got a reason to make another one. 
because you you will wear them out and mm-hmm. and uh, and there's always the next project. You know, I've I've had guys contact me and tell me they want to make one bow. They'd like to have the experience of making one bow, and I well, I tell them there is no one bow. <laughs> once you you know once you learn how to do it, you're going to want to make more, and so don't. Don't think about one bow. Think about a series of bows, you know, and and then be ready for that, you know. And uh, so, so I started. Uh, I started doing that. I was doing that through the the uh, through the seventies and eighties, and uh, uh, I didn't hunt with one until eighty seven. That I actually took one out and hunted with it. But I, but I, but I shot a lot of arrows at him. I was shooting fiberglass. Laminated longbows primarily then uh, in the eighties, and uh, but and the uh, something that also came about during that time was a uh, uh, one of our customers. Uh, he was from uh, originally from Oklahoma, and he and his wife uh, there was some oil money settlement to Native Americans from from Oklahoma, and uh, and and he had got a bit of a windfall from that and uh, uh, his name is Duke Savora and uh, he and Kathy Savora started a broadhead company and they built one of the first interchangeable blade broadheads uh, the uh, Savora uh, Savora broadhead where they had you know razor blades instead of sharpening your broadhead you'd buy a pre-sharpened blades and put them in there and that was so he started with that. And the next thing he did, though, once he got that thing going, is he wanted to make recurve bows again. The, all of the factories had, in the late 70s, early 80s, they had literally given away all of their stock in recurve bows because they weren't selling and, and nobody didn't want to buy them. And in the middle of all that going on, Duke decides to start his own recurve factory. <laughs> and, and and it was... Uh, uh, he he hired Bill Stewart away from Bear Archery Company. Bill Stewart was one of the uh, chief, Bear's chief innovators in, in making bows, and he was responsible for the design of a lot of bear bows we see today. And but but he was originally from Yakima, Washington, and he was getting close to retirement age, and he wanted out of Florida, <laughs> and and Duke was his ticket out of Florida, and Duke set up a a uh, a factory in Yakima, where the where the Howitt factory was, and there were a lot of experienced bow makers in Yakima, and so and and Bill Stewart was was one of Yakima's our Howitt Archery's innovators back in the '50s, so he still had his connections back there. So, and one of the one thing that Bill Stewart could do is you could hand him an empty warehouse, and he could make you a factory from scratch. Uh, everything presses forms the whole thing and so he did that for duke and and then duke uh this savora archery company was going going strong he was he was doing okay he was getting off the ground and then duke had a had a uh a failed heart attack uh a couple of years after the the company was was started and and that shut the whole thing down it was still not rolling per se you know it was still getting getting on its feet and uh the decision was made just to stop making some more bows and all of this equipment went in went into storage and uh stewart bought some of it 
and uh, and started his own bow plant at, on, on his own home location. So Stuart was back and making bows with Bill Stewart's name on them. And uh, but there's a lot of equipment left over, and we are approached by the Savora family in uh, 1988, and uh, wanting to know if we are interested in in any of this, and and so we thought about it, and you know, do we want to be in the bow business again? And uh, I I was ready for a change. I'd been behind the counter for oh another 15 years. And, and I'd been making things, and I'd been making bows, and I thought, well, I, maybe we can make bows, and maybe I'll make bows. And uh, so that was the start of my commercial bow making right there. And uh, I started in 89, and uh, and haven't really looked back since. And uh, so still still doing it. We, we never, I, I never expanded it into a factory. I was kind of, I guess I've always kind of uh, uh, enjoyed the smaller angle of things, and so I I stayed kind of we stayed kind of a one man shop, and and we never did expand into a, a factory other than uh, upgrading some of my equipment, and uh, so and, and I, I I made bows for Northwest Archery until '95, and then I I decided I would uh, try going on my own. You know I was just part of Northwest Archery up to that point and I so I I, I asked the question could I could I take the, the bow back the bow making part of our business and split that off and and have that as being my part of Northwest Archery my interest in Northwest Archery and I'll become Pacific U uh, incorporated Pacific U longbows and so we agreed upon that and uh, so I I I made bows still at the Northwest Archery on on site on on their uh, property until '98, uh, when we found a property in uh, about 20 miles east of Seattle, more out in the sticks, and uh, so and that's that's where I am today, still I'm out in uh, the Snoqualmie Valley, about 20 miles east of Seattle, and uh, got a we bought a sort of an old dairy farm that had a big barn and a big workshop off to the side of it. And, uh, and it was just, to me, it was an ideal place to work. And it's also big enough to do classrooms, whole classrooms. And now I, I realized, and I, I'm kind of rattling on here, but <laughs> they, as soon as I started making wooden bows, I had other people want to make wooden bows with me. Other people wanted to learn to make bows. And so, uh, and I, I was working in the store. I, I, I talked with people all day long, and I, and I didn't. I always been a teacher, and uh, so it was a natural thing for me to, to, to move toward teaching people to make bows, and I, and I enjoy that. I, I enjoy working with people, and just like you enjoy seeing when you teach new archers to shoot, you see the light bulb go off in their head, and and the. I can actually do this. I can hit something. Same light bulb goes off when they learn they can make a bow. They can make their own bow, and uh, and that's so. What I do with that is I I can't create bow makers in in one session, but I can plant the seed and I can provide an experience, a memorable experience, and uh, and that's the best compliment I get. I 
I have, uh, you know, I've had many people tell me this is the most memorable thing I've done in years. And, and I really like that. Uh, so I'm, I'm still teaching as well. And, uh, so that's, that was kind of my beginning and, and, uh, in the whole thing. And that's what I'm still doing. I, I, so I, uh, so I still make all kinds of boats. So what is <laughs> yeah. so what is your favorite boat to build, Jay? Well, the, my favorite boat to build is often what I'm what I'm working on at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's a shifting of gears. Well, so and, so uh, we'll yeah, narrow that down yeah. a little bit. Uh, so you you I know you build the the U self bows, which are absolutely gorgeous. I've seen uh, the English long bows you build, and that's still on my list of of wants at some point. Um, then you've got the the classic laminated bow and the thunderbird so of those of those bows which is your favorite to build and and you can't cop out and say the one you're working on currently you gotta you gotta give us what your favorite is <laughs> well as far as parts of when i'm working on fiberglass laminated bows my favorite part of that is creating a new bow the the gluing it up and 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 taking all those pieces and then i i get it out of the you know, I have to. I make all my own parts, and so I, I put all those parts in a in a press, and and when it comes out, it's a it's a blank that's ready to make a bow, and and it's sort of like nothing to something, and I like that part of it. Uh, from a from a uh, oh a focus standpoint, from a pleasure standpoint, and from a challenge standpoint. Uh, Making a, a U longbow is uh, is always a challenge, and uh, or making it out of any kind of wood, because uh, you never know quite what you're going to get. Particularly a self bow, one that's built out of all one piece of wood, not a laminated, right. you know, wood bow, but a self bow. And you, uh, if I if I take an order for a bow like that, I'll I'll usually start two, and sometimes I'll start three. And one of those two or three bows will identify themselves as the bow that's going to best fit that order. But I, and I, and I, they don't, I can't take just a piece of wood and make a given bow out of it. And you can, but it's much better if you let the wood have a hand in making its own choice. I might start out to make a a 50-pound bow. And then I discover I've got this piece of wood that would really make a better 60-pound bow. It's just that's the character that wood has. And uh, it'd be a shame to try to carve that thing down to a lighter bow. I, w- I would heartily really, agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you would. Yeah, but but sometimes, I, you know, I'd carve that thing down and it wouldn't even look right by the time I got it down to 50 pounds because it really, uh, that that wood needed to be, make that certain that certain bow. And uh, so it's a it's a, a little journey of discovery when you start out to make a uh, a self bow. So it's almost like and, the uh, it's almost like the bow chooses chooses the bowyer or the the archer, kind of like the. Well, it it chooses what it is. Mm-hmm. It, it chooses you know I I don't choose what it's going to be. The the wood chooses what it's going to be, and and sounds sounds a little. You know, spacey like, but that's the way it is. So it is. Well, J- so. well, Jay, I was going to compare you to the to the real life Ollivander, Al- like from Harry Potter, with with the <laughs> oh. with the wand chooses the wizard, with the bow chooses the archer. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Steve, Steve's daughter Bella will get a kick out of that. Yes, yeah, she will. If she listens. Yeah, yeah. 
the uh, well, you could, yeah, it's like it's like the magic hat. Whether you're going to be Gryffindor or Slytherin or whatever, you're going to have to. <laughs> is this going to be an English longbow or is it going to be a North American style bow? You know. It, well, yeah, and I always that, I, that's part of it too. What style are you going to make? I, I always figured you just kind of did one at a time. I didn't. I didn't think you had an approach like that. That's really cool to to think about. Well, it makes it a lot more fun, and, and, it, and it results in a better bow to make. Uh, and I, so there's no all if on my wood bows, I have I might have a dozen different ones in different stages. Like I might I might glue up some staves for I might glue some billets up into staves, and I maybe I have an order for one or two bows, but I might glue up six, and uh, it gives me an excuse to look at what I got, and uh, and so those will some of those will sit around for a while and. Uh, uh, so it, it, it's it's its own. And when I when I start to build a U bow, uh, like if I'm building an English bow, an English U long bow, first thing I build are the horn knocks, <laughs> and I I do them differently than some people. Some people will, will make the bow and then they'll glue a horn knock to it, and then they'll shape the horn knock on the end of the bow. And my, but my dad was doing it. I'm doing it the way my dad was doing those things. And I I have some steel rods that have tapered ends on them that, that that look like the end of a bow and i'll uh, i'll drill out the horn and then I'll, I'll i'll heat melt it onto this steel rod and then i'll and i might have i've got maybe eight or ten steel rods and i'll and i'll make i'll make horn tips all day for a while uh so that when I, i'm making the english bow at some point in time it's ready to have a horn tip on it and I, and I can't take it any farther until I put that horn tip on it because that's going to change the bow. Uh, you know, the, the bow begins, to, part of the bow is going to center around the tip. You know, it's, there's the center of the bow and there's the tip of the bow. So it's all, so I don't want to stop the, the process of making that bow and then turn around and make some horn tips. I grab those tips and I, and I put, and it's, I can continue building the bow in real time. Now, all, I'll do a lot of work. Uh, I uh, when I when I'm building a selfie bow, I use uh, I use draw knives and I use cabinet scrapers. I use uh, belt sander. I use my I use a bandsaw. I do some shaping with a bandsaw. I use a hatchet once in a while, and uh, and I use I do a lot of fine work actually on a pneumatic sanding drum, and. Uh, so I've got this spinning drum that has a really low pressure wheel mm-hmm. on it, mm-hmm. uh, and it the low pressure makes it so it won't chatter, it doesn't bounce on the right. thing. I can put pressure on it, and it and it I think of it kind of like a power cabinet scraper. But I've got I've got thousands of hours on that thing, and uh, it, what it allows me to do is when I'm building a self view bow, when I when I really start getting towards the weight. And I'm, uh, uh, I do it. I make the bow in real time. In other words, I just make the bow. I, I, I don't draw center. Uh, I, I don't draw center lines. I don't draw lines on anything. I, I just, uh, as soon as I put a center line on a piece of wood, that line becomes obsolete almost immediately because something will show up in the in the nature of the wood, uh, a flaw, uh, something the wood's doing. That I'll have to change the center line, so the 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 bow centers on itself. So you, I look down the bow, and I look down one end, and I look down the other, 
and I can see the center. I, I, I can see the bow before I start making the bow. But then I, and that keeps changing in front of me while I'm making it. And when it's time to put the horn tips on it, uh, the English longbow, unlike a lot of bows, the English, the narrow English longbow needs to be from a, from a uh, linear standpoint, from looking down the bow, it needs to be in a straight line. Uh, that's the way they work the best. And uh, so you'll start with a piece of view that has doesn't have a lot of run out. It's just straight a straight grain bow for for an English bow. And uh, it, you want it looking down the bow. It needs to look like a looking down a railroad track, you know. And uh, and when the tips go on, it's a matter of centering those things on it. And you know, the tips when I put them on are about uh, maybe 70% finished. So I've got some monkeying around I can do with them, you know, if I need to make some corrections with it. And uh, But I'll go from a, a rough stave to a fully tillered bow in the course of a day. Hmm. And, uh, and I enjoy working that way with it. Now, if I've got seasoned wood, I can do that. If I've got wood that's even a little young, like a like a three or four or five year old PCU might not be quite ready. I mean, it's ready, but it's so. If that's one reason, I'll put I'll glue up some of these billets early, and some of them be sitting around. You know, I've, I've, they were in a log form, and then they became billets, and then they became spliced. And every stage of that, you're reducing it on down, and the exposure to to oxygen and uh, Exposure to seasons, like one, uh, a seasonal thing, a bow going through a full season in my shop will change the wood uh, if it's if it's any in any way young wood, you know. Well, then I can I can vouch for for having been I've been to your shop a couple of times now, and and both times there's there's uh, bows in all different stages everywhere i mean it's and i'm like a i'm like a kid in a candy store i want to i want to pick up and shoot everything that's that'll that'll put a string on it uh jay i i'm i want to i do want to talk to you a a little bit about so so of all the bows that that i've shot of yours um you know i'm a i'm an american semi-longbow fan that's mostly what i shoot and i love your classics um and in fact uh a version of your classic that uh was gifted to me by a fellow named Beecher Duvall, who's who's local to my area. He gave it to me last last summer. Um, it's it's a little bit different than your classic is now, and I think you called it a Wapiti was the the name of the the bow. But it's uh it has more of a, a decor to it. It's a, a two piece takedown, and I'm actually that's the bow I'm planning to carry with me um, to Wyoming um, this year. Oh yeah. So, so, yeah. so there I've said what my favorite is, and, and I own quite a few of your bows, so I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite bow to shoot? Well, my, my favorite bow to shoot, I, I really enjoy, from a standpoint of just shooting arrows, I really enjoy shooting the, the, those Thunderbirds. Uh, I, I, I grew up with a recurve in my hand, and, uh, and I've always enjoyed a good recurve, and having the ability to make my own recurves the way I want to build them is just a complete joy and uh so that's what i make in those bows every one i make uh it's, it's most fun if i figure i'm making it for myself <laughs> and and uh but so i do that and 
and and then I got to let them go, you know. And uh, but I do enjoy uh, taking them to. Oh, you know, I, you you can get about where it's a certain uh, uh, when you're making it, you can get to a certain level with it, and and you can say, yeah, it's a bow, it's ready to go. And then you, if I spend another hour on it or or another couple hours on it, I, I might spend be monkeying around with a grip or some feature of it, and uh, just seeing where I can where I can take that thing. And I enjoy that particular final part of the. It's kind of like the children's hour, you know. I get to, <laughs> I get to make it for me, you sure, know, sure. or make it the way I want. And, I, and that's where I discover new things and uh, and things I'm not doing. So I, I enjoy shooting those. Now, as far as a bow to walk around the woods with, uh, I really enjoy carrying my U my U longbow, my self U longbow in the woods. It just um, oh the the history of the whole thing, the fact that it's made out of wood and it. And it belongs out there, and uh, it's just a. I, I like the feel of carrying. A, of course, they don't weigh anything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if I, it, it, what I figure is any any bow I take out there, and if I get in a situation to harvest an animal, you know, I could do that with any bow I have. So, the but the bow would mean the most to me to harvest the animal with I, is a bow that I handmade out of wood. And uh, so I automatically, when I leave the house, I've got one leg up on having a really great day because that's, you know, the bow that I would like to harvest something with. Sure. So, yeah, so that's where that comes so from. So is that the one Is the one you like to carry? Is that the one you call Old Snappy? That's the one I'm still carrying the most, yeah, Mr. Snappy. Mr. Uh, Snappy, that's it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I, I need to make a uh, – I've made other bows that's the one I've kept. You know, I've made a lot of other bows, and I've made other bows for me that didn't all stick around. But that was uh, Mr. Snappy is really made out of a very mediocre-looking piece of wood. It uh, doesn't shoot mediocre. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It was I when I do a bow making class, I I, I take students through. Uh, it's a three-day class, and at the end of the three days. They go home with a completely finished bow with leather on it and everything. A bow that looks like I made the bow. Uh, that's that's the output that I that I try to get out of there. And I start out though the first day, uh, the first hour or two, I, I take a rough use stave and I and I put a string on it. I I take them completely through in two hours what they're going to spend the whole day doing, but they can see it happen in front of them. And so I'll do that with a bow, and I, and then I'll set that one aside, and I'll go work on their bows. But I, they they see where they're going with it. And Mr. Snappy was one of those candidates. It was just kind of a so-so stick of wood that I used as a uh, a sample bow for me. And uh, it's wide grain, doesn't have a lot of great color to it, uh, you know. And and it, and I, but I always eventually finish these sample bows that I'm starting with, and I finished that one up. And I discovered that wow, this is one of the hardest shooting you bows I've ever made. This is a good bow. I should keep this bow, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I did. Yeah. And and, uh, and how how old is Mister Snappy? Mister Snappy was made in '98. It was made wow. before I moved to my new shop. <laughs> That's and, impressive. And it's still there, but I don't I don't shoot it a lot. I'll I'll take it out and I'll shoot it for a couple of weeks before I go you know before the hunting season and. Uh, you know, just just enough to get my eye back, and and then I don't I shoot other bows the rest of the year because I don't want to wear sure. it out. 
mm-hmm. there's no point in it and uh and wearing it out but uh yeah the uh, uh there's a lot that's been written about bowwoods and there's a lot that's been written about you would but it's been my thought a lot of what has been written about you bows or about was somebody else somebody wrote something and somebody else read it and then they wrote it down again because I can't tell what I'm going to get out of a piece of wood till I make the bow. I mean, I've got some idea, you know, you read about fine grain, 100 grains, 100 lines per inch and in a certain color and it's how to judge a piece of you wood. Well, the 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 real way to judge a piece of you wood is to make a bow out of it and see what you mm-hmm. get. <laughs> that's and that's where Mr. Snappy came in. It was it's you don't uh, and and most people that have made a lot of U bows that have actually made a lot of U bows, they'll all tell you the same thing. He's got to make a bow, you know. And uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna get around to uh, I'm gonna get around to having you make me a a version of Mister Snappy one day real soon. Um, every time we start talking about the the yourself bows, I just I want one, um, and I need I need one to go with the others I've got hanging up in here because they're all they're all yeah. the laminated versions, so. You should come out and make one. That's what you should do, actually. You know, I, and honestly, Jay, I would really enjoy to doing that. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe one year I'll take a break from 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 hunting one week and just schedule some vacation to come out there and do that. That uh, it would, yeah, it would. You don't want to take don't take your time out of the woods too much there. But maybe, maybe you could. Uh, and I know when you're out here for work, you're 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 busy all the time but that's just a suggestion i'd be happy to make you one too but but someday you should do that mean, meanwhile yeah. i just uh i just spend time on your instagram account looking at looking at <laughs> looking at uh yeah. looking at yeah. uh thunderbirds <laughs> i i just i just came by a, a stash of old yew wood and old osage there was this pile of wood i've known about for about 30 years and i'm i'm the third owner of that pile of wood and uh, and I'm the one that's going to turn it into bows. So I've got some I've got some great old wood, old yew wood that I haven't had for yeah, a while. You got to go and, and throw that in front of me now, Jay. That's just that's just <laughs> that's mean. Well, what, it'll be well, it'll be around well, for a couple. Well, wait years. a second. Who, yeah. who who are the owners of this wood? Several several anonymous people. <laughs> several anonymous <laughs> people. <laughs> one one who harvested it many years ago. <laughs> and uh, who is going to do something with it, but but didn't, you know? And I mean, it it takes a lot of time to make bows, and then and then someone else who owned it after that, and uh, and then they, uh, they they decided they wanted more room in their garage, and uh, so I I cut a deal for it and was really happy to get it, and I I've, I've already made a number of bows out of it since this early this spring. So, so, so when are you sending Steve anonymous quotation marks <laughs> in the, in the mail? <laughs> that would actually, yeah, that would actually, yeah. that would actually make a really cool name for a bow anonymous. It would be. Uh, it I'll would have be. to, I'll it have to be. sit down and start reading my, my copy of bows on the little Delta again and figure out a, I don't know. You know, we talked about Jay building a. a, a in fact, uh, the sure. the mountain gator bow was we we tossed around there for a while because we thought it was going to come out too heavy of calling it uh, mossback. So, man, yeah, well, I'll probably man, that's a, that sounds like, that's a really cool name. Yeah, so it, it is. We'll we'll talk soon. Yeah. Jay. 
<laughs> sure, we will. We will. Well, yeah. well Jay, Nick, anything else you want to you want to throw? No, throw man. In? He, Jay, you covered everything once again and more. So. Absolutely, Jay. We we greatly appreciate you you uh, hopping on here. Well, thanks us. for having me. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. So. And and I'm sure we'll we'll find a way to to do this again and get you on here again because we always enjoy talking to you. Good talking with you guys. Good talking with you. You got, I I think you've got a, a good show here, and and if I could be a tiny part of it, I'm I'm, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Well, we sure we sure do appreciate that, Jay. We really do. Well, Nick, uh, I guess we'll we'll call this one a wrap, and uh, I will look forward to talking to you soon. And Jay, now that you've thrown that teaser out again, I'm I'm sure I'll be in touch with you soon about another, either old old Osage or an old Ubo, one or the other. Yeah, yeah, or or each. <laughs> sure enough, sounds good. All right, well, sounds take good. care, guys. Thanks, Steve. Yeah.